Hello everyone. Welcome to the Woman of Now podcast. My name is Stephanie Jansen. I am the director at Navigator, a free, fun and informative space providing practical advice to help female professionals thrive in the Australian workforce. In this podcast, we sit down with an Australian female each month to chat about professional navigation. This month's podcast is sponsored by Mentor Walks. Ever wanted to be mentored by a senior executive, business guru or entrepreneur? Mentor Walks can make this dream a reality. Simply sign up for a monthly walk in Melbourne, Brisbane or Sydney where emerging professional women are matched with established female leaders. Take your career to the next level by walking and talking with those with serious professional know-how. Register now at www.mentorwalks.com.au. This month's podcast features Tamina Ansari. Tamina is an award-winning multi-platform journalist who came to Australia with her family as refugees from Afghanistan in the early 90s. In 2014, she was awarded the ABC Sydney Cadetship and has since worked in Sydney and Western New South Wales newsrooms as a news presenter, reporter and video journalist. Tamina made history in 2013 by being the first Valve reporter on national Australian television. Her stories have featured on flagship programs such as Landline, AM and PM. It is safe to say that Tamina is absolutely unstoppable. Since then, Tamina has moved to TRT World and is a producer and presenter based out of Istanbul. Without further ado, here is the interview. Enjoy. Tamina, thank you so much for being our guest this month in the Woman of Now podcast. Would you like to give our listeners a little bit of background information about yourself? So my name is Tamina Ansari. I'm 27 years old. I currently work at TRT World, which is based in Istanbul, Turkey, and I'm a producer slash presenter um, at this uh, international channel. I'm originally from Afghanistan, uh, but I was uh, raised in Australia, in Sydney, to be exact. Tamina, you've just noted there that you were born in Afghanistan and you've got quite an interesting story um, as to how you finally got to Australia. Do you want to give us a bit of a picture of your family background and a bit about your journey? Yeah, sure. So pretty much my story is this. Um, In the early 90s, what happened was Russia was obviously in Afghanistan at the time and my family are originally from Kabul. So at that time, things were obviously not very good in the country, which, you know, currently it's not any better now, but back then it was still quite bad as well. Um, There were bombings going on, um, there were curfews in place and it was just a very dangerous place to be. So my dad was um, forced to join the army. So my mum was left alone with three children at the time and she was pregnant with me, her final one. Um, And she decided that at that point my dad had told her that it's not safe and you need to leave. So my mum pretty much collected everything that we had, so very minimal things like, you know, some photographs and a few clothes and that was about it. We had to leave everything else. And she uh, crossed the border and she went to New Delhi in India. And that's funnily enough where I was born. Um, And it's an interesting story when I tell people, oh, I was born in New Delhi because they assume, oh, you're from India. And I'm like, no, it's it's my family from Kabul and Afghanistan and they had to flee. And then I just happened to be born there. 
uh, as luck or fate has it. Uh, I was born in New Delhi and we were there for about a year and a half, uh, a year and a half to two years. And that's when uh, my father was able to finally join us from Kabul when he got out of the military uh, and he came over to New Delhi and was with us. And then we were able to uh, thankfully come to Australia and we arrived in Sydney in Ride to be exact which is in like kind of north northwest Sydney, I guess. Um, and we arrived there in 1992 or 1993, so early 90s. So, yeah, that's a little bit of my story of uh, how we got to Australia and how I kind of, you know, where I came from. That's an incredible story and, and background. That journey must have really shaped you in a very profound way. You were quite young, but that being said, you know, that story would have held with you and, and, and held with you through the years of you growing up in Australia. No, very much so. Um, I think that for me, because we came to Australia as refugees, um, the the concept of a refugee and the concept of what it feels like to be a refugee is not foreign to me and it still feels so raw and still so new in a way. Uh, I hear it all the time in my job, obviously, as a journalist. You know, you hear, uh, you know, you hear things about, you know, refugees and the refugee crisis and all this stuff and I just think, oh, well, I am a refugee and I, I don't know if I was one or if I still am classified as one, but, I, I mean, I've experienced what it's like to be a refugee and I think people assume coming into a new country like Australia, okay, the journey's over, but it's really just beginning. And that was actually sort of in a way the hardest time was actually, you know, seeing my family struggle in Australia. And, you know, yes, we were given so many opportunities and it's, you know, we're so grateful for that. But just what we went through, I still have vivid memories of how we were living when we first came here, uh, which is, yeah, which, um, yeah, which, I suppose, I, you know, it, those memories are hard to kind of shake off. And do you mind if I ask, can you paint a bit of a picture of what that was like? Yeah, sure. So when we first came here, obviously my parents didn't know the language. We didn't have any money. Uh, we were living, you know, with relatives um, all in, you know, one, one home. A lot of people were in one house. Um, I remember living in this like really tiny apartment with not very much there, you know, inside the home. Um, it, it was just like, you could tell, you know, my parents were struggling, both of them working two jobs each. My older sister was pretty much having to raise us and take care of us. And after school, mum and dad wouldn't be home because they'd be working so much, trying to make a living for themselves to support us in this little apartment in ride at the time. And then, even just things like signing permission slips at school and stuff. I mean, my parents didn't really know English, so, like, I would have to write out my permission slips and my, you know, excursion forms and, like, all this sort of stuff. I mean, I don't know. Most kids don't have to have that kind of responsibility of, you know, reading and writing for your parents and making sure they're aware of everything. And, you know, so I feel like I kind of matured really quickly. But, again, I'm the youngest of four siblings, so I was very lucky to have my elder siblings kind of take care of me. Um but yeah, so I think just generally, uh, yeah, that that was difficult. And then later on in life, my parents actually got divorced. I think the, I would say the the stress of coming to a new country, and I suppose my dad going through war and everything really affected my family. So my mum had no family here, and again, we were kind of having to start as refugees all over again because we lived in a women's refuge shelter um, out on the northern beaches uh, for 
you know, I think it was about a year or two years. Uh, and we didn't really have any contact with my dad. And then at that point, that was really tough. I remember just seeing my mum in such a state and being in this, you know, refuge with women. And I was just a little girl. I remember thinking, this is so scary. Like, who are these random women staying in this, you know, house? And I remember there would be like alarm bells going off and drills if an intruder came and what would happen. And seeing all this stuff at a young age is just it's not something, you know, it's not something that you think you'd ever have to kind of experience or it's normal childhood, but, you know, we had to experience that. And then um, luckily the government obviously helped us and my mum was able to get a house and, you know, uh, we moved out of the refuge finally. But I remember vividly a night where the only thing we had in the house was a mattress and we all just slept on the mattress together. And it was just a mattress was the only thing in the home that we had was a mattress. So, I don't know. I just remember how the house was bare. Like I've got photos of the house with nothing in it. And just, I can't believe sometimes that that's how we, you know, it was for a good while before my mum was able to again, pick up two jobs and work to build us up from nothing. Mm, that is quite a story. Your, your mother sounds like quite a strong character from what mm-hmm. you're saying. How has she influenced your life? Do you think? My mum has influenced my life in the greatest way possible without sounding too cliche. My mum is just a rock. She's my role model. She's everything to me. She's what I've always wanted to be in a woman. She's independent. She's fearless. She's courageous. I think she's very intelligent. I think she's just, I mean, anyone who knows my mum would know how much of a hustler she is. Like she's worked hard for everything she's gotten in life uh, and she's never been given anything on a silver plate or she's never, she's had to work for absolutely everything, including her relationship, like in terms of her marriage, which broke down, including picking herself back up again, raising four children on her own, you know, working two jobs, three jobs sometimes, cleaning people's homes, working at fruit markets, stocking shelves, you know, just doing the most basic kind of jobs. And my mum still managed to raise four, you know, amazing children who are, all, who are generally all successful, went to university, now have an amazing life. And it's honestly all because of my mother and the values that she's instilled in me, which is at the end of the day to never give up. Mm, she sounds like a wonderful woman. Did your mother ever have any idea of what she envisioned for you? In terms of your career trajectory, did you always think you were going to go into journalism and was that supported by your mother or did it come about in a different way? No, never. Um, journalism was never supported by anyone in my family. Oh. The only person that supported me with journalism was actually a really close friend of mine. Everybody, I think it's this very, we call it kind of, we make a joke about it, but like this wog mentality that pretty much, you know, you go to school, you go to university to become a lawyer or a doctor. And that's kind of what will bring pride to the family. And so my parents were very similar to that. Initially, I was accepted into a law and economics degree um, and I did it for a year. And then when I chose to drop it and pursue journalism, my family weren't too happy with me, to be honest. They were quite upset because naturally, you know, they've come into this country with nothing and they just want us to have good income and security and, you know, being a lawyer or a doctor for them you know, it was assumed that that would give you a good life. But a journalist, you know, no, but there's not many Muslims in media, especially in Australian media on top of that. So for my family, it was very much like, oh, what are you doing? You know, you've made the biggest mistake of your life. You're not going to make any money and you wear a scarf, you're a hijabi, you know, you're a Muslim. So you're definitely not going to be on TV and you're not going to make it anywhere. And yeah, so they weren't supportive at all. But then (laughs) ironically, but then later on, they did start to 
come around. I think when they saw my achievements and what I was able to do with my skills and that I, I actually had some talent in this and that they saw my passion for it, I think then they started to change their minds a bit and realize, you know what, I think this is for her and this is the right thing. Mm-hmm. How powerful. But that must have been difficult. Yeah, it definitely was. I remember like crying so much and just feeling like there was no one in the world that cared or even, you know, thought that I had the talent, to be honest. And it's that whole Muslim thing as well. But, you know, being a minority within Australia already and then trying to be a minority breaking into mainstream media, which is full of, you know, Anglo-Saxon people. And like, you know, the media is shaped in a very certain way in Australia. And it's not easy to break into that being, being different or being from the other side of that. So, it was, de- it was very difficult, but at the same time, it sort of fueled my passion more because when people tell me no, I often take that as kind of a sign of, in a way, like a sign. it's like I take it as a badge of honour because it just pushes me more. So they tell me no and I'll go and run a million miles forward to try and make it like a yes or to try and prove them wrong. So it worked out well. <laughs> You're very resilient. <laughs> I was going to touch on something that you'd said. There's this new concept that I have come across recently called the double glass ceiling. And Mm -hmm. it's that idea that women from ethnic minorities or diverse backgrounds don't just face that single ceiling, that they have really two to push through. And you've really touched on that there. And, you know, I'm a white, as can be, Anglo, Aussie, fifth generation, regional Aussie. And Mm -hmm. I I think that going through my university trajectory certainly has really opened my eyes to the challenges that people from diverse backgrounds face. It's it's a two-sided pressure. There is the pressure of society trying to put you in a box and then potentially your family or cultural expectations trying to put you in a box. And I would imagine that would be very difficult, as you've just explained. No, exactly. I mean, it's almost like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you take that way, people are not happy with you. But if you take the other way, people are still not happy with you. So then you realize you reach a point where you're like, you know what, sack this, I'm going to take my own way. And you have to realize that sometimes it takes, you know, you, you do have this extra burden on your shoulders because you're representing something far greater than yourself. And I think in my case, I really thought, okay, well, this is a chance for me to represent my community and other girls like me who probably are facing very similar struggles. And if I don't do it, if I don't break in, then you know, who, like, when will we wait for someone to be the example for us? So I thought I might as well get up and just try my best to break into this industry and follow my dream so that maybe other girls can have it a bit easier. You know, other young women who are facing very similar situations to me won't have to go through what I had to go through. So I see it that way. And then it kind of makes me feel better about this double glass ceiling or window, whatever it's called. Yes. So at the point where, you know, you're in your your first degree, you're following that trajectory that your family wanted you to follow. At what point did you know, I think I need to make a change? Honestly, I think I knew the day I sat in my first law lecture and I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, I, The professor was talking and mens rea and I don't know what. <laughs> Criminal law. Onus of burden of this and yeah. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I just... Even then, everyone was like raving on about how excited they were for criminal law and, oh, my God, this is so great. And I came out of that thinking I hated every single second of that and there was not one thing that excited me. Like, And so I think it was that, at that point that I really realized something was not right and I kept it going for about a year 
as I said, more because for my parents to, you know, fulfill their expectations and to make everybody happy. But then by the end of the year, it was so bad. I mean, I was failing or I was just passing and I was like, I cannot do five years of this because a double degree is generally five years, um, at least in New South Wales. And, um, yeah, I just realized I can't, I can't continue this for about five years and live this kind of lie. I have to do what's best for me. And by the end of it, I started to realize that I love listening to people. I love hearing other people's stories. I love sort of hearing about, you know, minority communities and my mom's own example of, you know, minority kind of individuals, you know, woman being of Afghan descent, being a Muslim, all those sort of things made me want to give a voice to people like my mom who may not be represented in mainstream media. So that's how I kind of started shifting towards journalism and researching more about it and watching the news. And I just had this obsession with it. I always had a bit of an obsession with you know, journalism in general. I used to watch SBS growing up. I never watched ABC, but I always used to watch SBS and Al Jazeera. So for me, I, yeah, I, 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 I could tell in my heart that law and economics was just not right. It was boring. (laughs) (laughs) I think what you've touched on there is that you're quite introspective and reflective, which is a great skill to have, especially at such a young age. Yeah, very much so because it was about that time that I also was learning more about my religion and that's when I actually decided to put on the hijab was at the end of my first year of uni. So ironically, I was going through a huge change at that time because I was not only changing careers and like in terms of my degree, but I was also going through a very physical change with my religion and, you know, deciding to put on the hijab or the veil, uh, which was a big deal because, you know, I mean, all your life you've grown up as you know, normal can be visibly. I don't, I didn't necessarily look Muslim going up. Yes. My name was foreign. I looked Afghan, but you know, you wouldn't think, Oh, okay, that's a Muslim, but putting on the veil was a choice that I decided to make at the end of the year. And I didn't come from a family that, you know, my mom wasn't veiled at that time. My sisters, I didn't have, it's not like I was, I was growing up. I was raised in a family that had, you know, scarves on and were a very practicing family. That wasn't necessarily the case, but yeah, I had come to make that choice at the end of the year as well. So it was, it was a very, uh, it was a very, I guess, revolutionary kind of year for me. And how do you practice your reflection, Tamina? I think I'm someone that mulls over things. I think I, um, I tend to overthink things too much. I tend to sometimes over reflect too much, like something will happen. And then I'll sit there and think about it for about a week or two weeks and try to make sense of it. So I, I like to process things, but I often process things way later, like after the fact. So something will happen and then I'll process it about two weeks later, which is kind of annoying in a way sometimes, but I guess it just goes to show me, I kind of work at my own pace and I beat to my own drum. I'm a little bit stubborn that way. And I think even with my own thoughts, I'm a little bit stubborn. Like it's like, no, Tamina, you'll process this when you're ready to process it. I'm not going to rush it. I'm not going to, you know, try to be too anxious about it when it happens. I'm just going to think about it and I'm going to make a decision. So in a way I am impulsive, but at the same time, I am a bit cautious and I do you know, I do like to think out what I'm going to do. Like I'm very aware of the consequences of what I choose to do. So let's say I know that I'm making a big decision like switching my degree. I already knew the consequences of that and all the ramifications of that decision, but I still chose to make it. So mm. I think I'm, yeah, as you said, I'm very aware and I am an intro, like I'm very introspective of myself and aware of what my actions, like the impacts of my actions and decisions on my life, like what sort of impact I actually have on myself and on other people. I am aware of that. And I think, yeah, it's through mulling over my decisions and really taking time to just think about 
all the different avenues and all the different consequences or, you know, benefits that are going to come from a decision that I make. And you were mentioning before that you decided to start wearing the veil whilst at university. Fast forward to when you started your career, did you find that you faced prejudice or setbacks as a result of, I suppose, having an outward manifestation of your religion? Absolutely. Um, I remember, and I will tell you this story, it was what a very defining moment for me in my career and just in my life in general. I was at a party for this Afghan girl um, who had been through this horrible time. Uh, she'd just recently gone through a divorce and she had a little son and it was his her son's birthday party. So I was at this party. I knew this girl. We were, we were family friends and there were a bunch of journalists at this event. And naturally, this was when I was very early on in my career. I hadn't, I was applying for jobs left, right, and center. I was still at uni, mind you, but still I was very eager and very passionate. So I was applying for jobs everywhere and I kept getting rejected. Everywhere I turned, people would just reject me left, right, and center. And I felt like I was never even given the opportunity to prove myself, to even open my mouth and say, hey, just listen to me and let me show you what I can do. Let me show you the context I have. Let me show you the kind of diversity I can bring to the Australian media landscape. So at this party, I met Caroline Jones, who is a veteran presenter for or used to be for Australian Story. She is iconic. She was like one of the first female journalists in Australia who pioneered the way for females, hosted her own show. Anyway, you can Google her more if you don't know about her, but she is just the most amazing woman. Anyway, she was at this party and we started talking. She just happened to be sitting next to me. And before you knew it, I just started, I broke down crying and she said, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. I said, I said, I'm so sorry. I've just met you for the first time. And here I am like crying my eyes out. I said, I just feel as though I'm not getting any opportunities because of my hijab, because of my scarf. Like no one is giving me a chance. Like no one will even look my way to even allow me to open my mouth and just prove myself. Like I don't want an easy entry in. I just want to be able to prove myself, but I'm not even getting that chance. And then she said to me, I remember she just looked at me and she was so heartbroken for me. And I think she could see that I genuinely was just so down on life and just down on everything. And then she said to me, don't you dare ever let yourself be put down in this way. And she was like, I'm going to make some calls. I'm going to try and get you in touch with a few people at the ABC and let's see what happens. She said, I can't make any promises. It's all up to you but at least I will allow you to have the opportunity to prove yourself and to open the doors for you. And that's exactly what happened because like two weeks later, I was having a meeting at the ABC with people from Australian story, which wasn't even necessarily like a news element of where I wanted to be. I mean, I wanted to be a news journalist, so it wasn't even the newsroom. It was a program, but I thought this is an opportunity and I'm going to take it and I'm going to prove myself and, you know, no one can stop me. So anyway, it was in that moment that Caroline threw me that lifeline and I will never, ever forget that. And to this day, we're still lifelong friends. She's my mentor and everything. But back to your question, absolutely, I have definitely faced discrimination because of my hijab and I've definitely, I think, not received opportunities because of it. Mm. That is an amazing story. Fantastic touching on mentorship and Mm. the power of networking. Yep. Networking is so important in journalism and just in any career in general. It's all about trying to 
you know, I suppose get out there and get into different circles and talk to people and just make good contacts. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be for a job opportunity. It can just be someone you're going to need later on in life or someone who may end up being a lifelong friend or mentor who you don't necessarily get anything out of besides wisdom and guiding you through career or life or whatever it may be. I mean, Caroline started off as a work mentor in a way, but now she's actually family to me. She's like, you know, a sister or a mother or an auntie, like I see her in that way. So it's amazing how networking can, yeah, can shape your life and can really change you and alter your experience, both in like in terms of career goals and also life goals. And I think the other thing from your story that really comes out is when you are networking, you don't necessarily have to put on a fake facade that you can be yourself, you can be honest. And oftentimes, showing a bit of vulnerability will be favorable because people that you're networking with will see you as a person and often will want to help. Absolutely. I mean, if I hadn't cried that day, and again, it literally I could not have controlled it even if I wanted to, but had my tears not flown out of my eyes and just streamed down my face, I mean, I don't know if I would have ever had, I don't know if Caroline would have ever, ever, if I hadn't been honest about my situation and said, no one's giving me a job and, you know, and actually started crying and all everything that happened. I don't think, I mean, Caroline may well have never even had offered to say, okay, well, let me get in touch with people and let's see what happens. She might've just said, okay, well, good luck. You know, if I hadn't opened up my mouth about my struggles, she might've just thought, oh, well, you know, this girl wants to be a journalist and she's doing well for herself and she looks happy on the outside and, you know, good on her. And it was nice to meet her and we could have parted ways that night and that would have been the end of it. And I probably wouldn't be here today. So yeah, showing a bit of vulnerability was exactly what helped me. That conversation, where did that lead you? So that led me to the ABC. I had a meeting with someone from Australian Story, the EP, and the like associate producer or something. And at that time, they met me and they said, look, we don't have anything to offer you, but what we can do is put you in touch with somebody else. And so I was referred to somebody else. And then I had a meeting with someone else at the ABC. And they said, okay, well, why don't you send us your CV and then come in for an interview? And I came in for an interview. And then they said, okay, you have an internship we'll give you an internship. It's four weeks. It's not paid, of course. And you will just, you know, work in the newsroom um, and we'll see how you go. And that was it. There was no promise of anything. It was just a four week internship. They have them all the time at the ABC. People come in and out of those doors. And that was, that was uh, how it all started for me. Mm. And then what happened after your internship? After my internship, so for four weeks, I was hustling every single day. I stayed back till like 2am. I was doing interviews to Afghanistan. I was trying to prove myself and I did. I ended up producing two stories that actually went to air as an intern um, for, uh, I think it was AM, PM and the world today. I was working in radio news and current affairs. Mark Colvin, who has passed now, rest in peace. He was the presenter for PM. Um, so I had so many experienced journalists around me and you can imagine foreign correspondents, Sally, Sarah, there was all these huge, like big names. And I was like this little intern from, you know, nowhere sitting in this newsroom. And, you know, I managed to get two stories, um, on air as an intern who knew, who didn't have any editing skills, who was just starting out to be honest, writing and things like that. And yeah, I mean, I think I really proved myself. And I think after that, I can't exactly remember what happened, but I think after that, slowly I was able to find a way to get a job because I think they saw that, well, I was able to publish two stories while I was there for four weeks as an intern and then that actually went to air and then they 
they referred me to someone in the newsroom, like more TV news and radio news, and then I kind of moved over there and I started doing some radio news shifts. Um, then I started picking up some overnight shifts, which were an absolute killer but were absolutely worth it. <laughs> I did those for months on end, um, you know, again, working hard, grinding, doing the dirty work, I guess. You know, it's not glamorous. It's not easy when you first start out. You have to start somewhere. You have to learn the basics of writing and, you know, meeting deadlines. And then before you know it, I became like a radio production assistant. Um, I would like assist the EPs. I applied for cadet chips, mind you, in this meantime. I was rejected from SBS two times for cadet chips. I was rejected from the ABC once for a cadet chip, actually twice for a cadet chip at the ABC. So as you can see, I, I don't take no lightly. So when you tell me no, I'm just going to keep going, and that's exactly what I did. I could have given up. I mean, I was rejected four or five times. So by the third time I finally got – I then went on to obviously apply for the – ABC cadet chip. And mind you, by this time I was working in the newsroom anyways. I mean, I was doing some TV stories. I was pitching original ideas. I was trying to prove myself with exclusive stories and stuff like that. And then long story short, I applied for the cadet chip third time and I had to go through all the steps, the tests, the exams, everything. And then at the end, I finally found out I got it. And that's kind of where it all kicked off mm. again from there. Oh, wonderful. So Tamina, I want to pull back just slightly to when you were speaking about, you know, the process of starting out and the need to really hustle. I know that it can be very difficult in those early days because you have a very steep learning curve. There are a lot of things going on around you, which are new and you're working long hours and you get curveballs thrown at you throughout the day that you've got to try and tackle. How did you manage those difficult moments? I think I just made sure that I had someone to talk to and someone to lean on. Um, I mean, my family obviously has been a strong support network after the initial, obviously, negative reaction. But later on in life, they've been a really – my family have always been a strong support network, particularly, obviously, my mom and my eldest sister – um, also, I've had a very, uh, a very like I've, ha- I have an amazing best friend who was always there for me, pushing me through and helping me. And my husband now, who was also a journalist at the time, he was also a great, you know, a great I guess source of comfort for me. Who always used to push me and tell me that I was great even when I didn't feel I was, or told me that I could make it when I didn't think I could. So I think having people around you who can reassure you, humble you, and just also remind you that work isn't everything and that there is other things to life than work. And if something doesn't necessarily go right in life, that we should be grateful and appreciative of everything. And that's why my mum, I suppose for me, is that reminder for me that, you know, to stay humble and to remember where I came from and my roots because, you know, you can have everything in life, but at the same time, everything can just leave you and you can be left with nothing, like how we started. So I guess it's that constant reminder that life can change and it can change very quickly. So be grateful for every moment and every opportunity and seize the day. It's a wonderful mentality and being grateful has shown to really help people. I think, you know, having that daily gratitude practice and being thankful for what's the opportunities that you've gotten, what's provided to you in your life and what you've worked for. I think it's incredibly important. Definitely. So fast forward, now you're in Istanbul. Update us on your current situation. 
So, yeah, currently we moved to Istanbul for work at TRT World, which is like an international news organization, sort of similar to Al Jazeera and the BBC. It's a bit of a startup here. It's the Turkish national broadcaster. And pretty much here I work in the digital department. So I've kind of moved away from conventional TV reporting and radio reporting, which is what I was doing in Australia. And I've moved more into the digital side of things. So I create social videos, which are like those kind of videos that you see on Facebook. So you might see videos from like, AJ Plus and stuff like that where they're presenter-driven. So you'll see some of my videos on our page if you follow TRT World. Um, on Facebook, you can say that I do – and I cover, like, international topics. So it could be something about the refugee crisis or it could be something about, you know, New Caledonia's independence from France or it could be about, you know, um, bombing in Syria or it could be, you know, about, you know, another attack in Kabul. And, you know, I cover a range of things and I think it's really good to be in an international – hub like Istanbul because you're covering more of the world in a way whereas Australia is I love Australia but it is very in a bit of a bubble whereas here you're in the center of the world and you know you're between Europe and the Middle East and there's just so much news going on and so many exciting things happening so yeah I'm pretty much a producer and a presenter uh, which means like I make these videos I write them I script them I package it together I present them and then we put them up online Um, And I'm also working with a TV show called Newsfeed, which airs on TRT World. So my packages go on digital, um, so on Facebook, on YouTube, but then on Twitter, but then they'll also go on our TV channel as well. Every day the program is on at, I think, 3.30 or something, Istanbul time. And, yeah, it's a half-an-hour program about what's trending around the world. So, With your current opportunity, how did you end up landing that? So a friend of ours who works at Al Jazeera said, Hey guys, um, there's a job going to my husband and I, uh, there's jobs going at TRT. It's in Turkey. It's this, you know, kind of startup. Would you guys be interested? And at that time I was working at Twitter Australia and I was so happy. Um, so I was pretty, like, I wasn't looking to leave Australia and Mo, my husband wasn't looking to leave Australia. He was working at breakthrough media which was like a, di- a digital production company. And so we both had good jobs. We were happy, newly married. And then long story short, the opportunity kind of came to us. And then we thought, oh, let's just give it a go and see what happens. So we applied and we went through the application process and everything. And then we ended up getting the job a few months later. And then Mo said, well, you know, we initially, we just applied for the sake of just, you know, giving it a go because why not? And then we actually thought, hey, do you want to move? And I thought, you know what, now's the best time to do it in life. And so that's when we made the decision to to um, head over to Istanbul. Mm. And how long do you see yourself being there? Look, I don't know. Every year I just I kind of take it every year step by step. So every year I evaluate and I'm like, okay, at the end of this year, am I happy? Do I want something new? Am I growing? Am I learning? And so, so far, I mean, I'm still here, so I'm happy. I guess I'm learning. I'm growing. End of this year, I'll reevaluate again. But end of this year will be two years that I've lived here. So I think maybe definitely another another few more years. I'm loving living in Europe, like in this part of the world. So I do miss home so much. But at the same time, home is always there. It's such a safe place, Australia. And it's like your comfort zone. And I, I kind of get bored of my comfort zone. I like to get out a bit and be a little bit risque, I guess, and live on the dangerous side of things a little bit and try taking, you know, a risk in life. So for me, I wouldn't mind going somewhere else after this in this region or this part of the world, but for now I'm, I'm happy. What do you think is next for you, Tamina? Like what, are you, what trajectory are you on? What are your goals? Look, I think 
I definitely, one thing I really enjoy is presenting. So I really would love to go back to Australia and to do some anchoring. Um, I think I would really love to give that a go. And I think there is still space in Australian media where we need more faces of, you know, multiculturalism and diversity. And we need people who are experienced journalists, you know, who've traveled the world and done amazing things. So I hope that I can come back with the skills that I've, you know, I suppose built here and take it back to Australia and use it there. And yeah, I guess I would love to do some anchoring, um, for obviously like, I don't know, news or whatever it may be, but I would love to, to kind of explore that a little bit more because I really enjoy presenting. I'd love to travel more, do more kind of foreign correspondent work. I really enjoy going to different places and hearing, you know, speaking to people on the ground and especially, like I said, minority communities and things like that. And I just hope to make a difference with my work. That's the main thing. I just want to be able to showcase how other people are living in different parts of the world to the rest of the world and hope that in that way, maybe the world can change for the better. So Mm, you've got very noble goals. So my final question to you is what advice would you give to any young female entering professional life in your field? I'm going to keep it short, going to keep it simple, and I'm going to keep it sweet. If you're told no, you can't, that's actually like a good thing. It will make you more thirsty. It'll make you more driven. And I think when you do actually prove them wrong, you'll have the last laugh. So I just think keep pushing, (laughs) keep pushing. Don't take no for an answer. And if you hear it, don't think it's the end of the world because I've been told no my whole life. And, you know, it's just driven me more to achieve what I've achieved. So enjoy it. (laughs) Fantastic. Tamina, thank you so much for joining us on the Woman of Now podcast. How can we keep up with you? Um, You can keep up with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Tamina Ansari. You can follow me on my YouTube channel and, again, follow TRT World. Um, And you can, if you're interested in following my work or anything, I've even got Instagram. So just search my name and you'll find me. I'm on every social media platform there is to be on. So, And I'm very thankful for this opportunity. Thanks for letting me, hearing my story and letting me speak to you guys. I'm honoured. And, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. We really look forward to seeing where your journey takes you. Thank you very much. Have a good one, Steph. Thanks so much, Tamina. Thank you for listening to the Woman of Now podcast presented by Navigator Australia. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review the show. It helps other people find our podcast. You can follow Navigator on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and we recently got Twitter. Or you can check out our website at www.navigator-australia.com. You can also become a Patreon to support this podcast. Contributions start for as little as $1 per month. If you would like to sponsor or partner with this podcast and Navigator, please contact us on our website. See you next month with another amazing Woman of Now podcast. Bye for now.